you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I guess in some ways it's hard to believe that last week was Easter. Seems like things are moving so fast, and I think that's a part of getting older. People, someone once told me, old, what is old? They said, old is 10 years older than where you're at. So it continually gets further down the line, but there are times where I think we know when people are older, and I have the privilege of going and visiting some people in life care centers and um, assisted livings, and it's always fun to hear the stories because what I have found is the closer that people uh, get to the end of their life, the freer they are to tell you what they think. They have no problem uh, holding anything back at that point. They begin to unleash because they know, what do I have got to lose? So a lot of times I'll give you a story. So I was at <laughs> there this week and there at lunchtime and um, one of the ladies at this table, it's, it, there's no assigned seating, uh, but they all seem to sit in the same spot every day. And one of these people had passed away. So there was an opening, and uh, a new person came to the facility and started to sit in someone else's seat. And that did not go over very well, and they began to talk and bicker and started answering for other people so much so that there was one person, okay, and this is this is in an assisted living home where some people don't even know they're there. Um, and some people got up and started yelling, fight! 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 I'm not joking. I am not joking. This is true stuff. I'm not making this. What I tell you, the the truth is funnier than what I can make up, I tell you. So again, we get this reality that as the the end draws near, we we start to tell people what we think and feel uh, with no filter. And that's not the way it should be. Um, It really should be. The more that we get older, the more gracious and loving we become. That's what Paul is trying to tell us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 9 through 12 this morning. So listen to the word. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to your word, we ask that as we have already sung, that you would allow it to go deep into our hearts, make deep roots, or that you would allow it to wash over us and to change us. And Lord, not just to change us to become moral people, but to change us to become like Christ, which is so much different than the world. So Father, teach us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see from this passage is there is a God-taught love. A God-taught love. And it's there for you. And it's a word that Paul, in essence, kind of creates. 
And so the, the first thing we have to understand is what is the foundation of love in regards to this passage? And so we begin to ask, what is human love? And human love is a very conditional love. It's a love that we all experience. It all depends on uh, what you do for me when you do it. And it all depends on what are you doing for me now. Um, can change quite regularly. And that's uh, really the understanding of what happens uh, in regards to human love. Uh, we were told from Matthew 5 verse 46 this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So even the even bad people out there um, love other people. So what's the distinction between human love that the world gives and the love that God gives to us? Well, God's love is uh, perfect. It's eternal love. It's from everlasting to everlasting, which means that God's love for you and me never changes. Now, again, I think if we're honest, if we think about that, that's hard for us to fathom. Because, again, our love changes all the time. If you are doing things nice for me and stuff like that, I tend to love you a little bit easier. You tend to bother me and upset me. I tend to not love you as much. We fluctuate in our understanding and our desires of love. God never does. God's love is perfect, it's eternal, it's unconditional. He becomes, in essence, the very definition of what love should be. Remember the words? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dies for sinners. So what Paul's saying to these people in Thessalonica, he's saying, Hey, I understand that you have been taught by God. And that love is being evidently worked out to those around you. Because again, we've been told it, it, the law was given first written by God and it was written on stone. But he says this, this not gonna, the law is not going to remain on a stone. The stone is going to become something that we call the heart. The law has to be written upon our heart. And as we have this, this law upon the heart, the more that we begin to love God vertical, the better and easier it is to love horizontally. Hopefully you've noticed that. The more we spend time with God and to love him, the easier it is to love other people. Because we grasp and understand how much he loves us and has forgiven us and given to us. So we now freely give to others. And so the, this God love is taught, but it doesn't just, it doesn't stop with just the family. It's an extensive love. The reality is what he says here is this family love, which is uh, the word here is the Philadelphia. It's where we get the city, the city of brotherly love. Okay. It's a familiar term. It's a biological love. And I know that we should have families that we say, this is the most loving place. This is the place where I can be accepted. I know that's not true for everybody. Okay. And I get that for my family. It is not a safe place. Okay, so so my extended family is not a place. So so people often ask me, why do you always live in fear? Why are you always worried about what people are thinking? Well, because the people that were supposed to be the closest to me, the ones who were supposed to be most loving to me, were the ones who hurt me the most. But the reality is, is that the scripture says, hey, if you've grown up in a family where you are loved, where there is a conditioning of, of having this trust and concern, having this, not just with just a, a few people, he's saying, now take that family love that you've been given, and now extend it out. That's why we're called a family. There are people here who do more for my family than my extended family ever has. 
There are people here that I would do more for than my extended family. And that's, that's not just wrong. That's right. We are to be a family to one another. We are to have concern and care. It's something that binds us because of trust and love that we have in each other. This place should be the safest place for everybody. And sadly, for a lot of people, the church is the worst place to go. May that never be so. We need to understand that we are to give that love and extend it to other. And remember, it's a costly love. It's costly love because of this. If you remember the story from Luke chapter 10, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And again, it's longer, so just listen. You can look it up later. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer says, desiring to justify himself, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his, on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. And then Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, that's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to be, extend that love to others outside of us. Does it mean it's going to be easy? No. Does it mean it's not going to be costly? It can be. But we are called to extend our, what we found to be true in our families, extend it to others. And Paul goes on to say, and not, we know that you're loving other people because you're already doing it, but we want you to continue to grow. You need to love more and more. We know you're loving now. We see it. We see how you love the, all the, everybody in the Macedonia, but we need you to continue to grow. Why is that? What does it, what does he mean? Listen, In the Old Testament, was there a principle to love one another? Yes. We are to love one another. It's a principle in the Old Testament. It's always been there. So why does Christ come in, or why does the apostles tell us the church or the world will know us by the way that we love one another? What's the difference now? The difference now is there's a paradigm shift. The principle to love one another has always been there. The paradigm now shifts. It says love as Christ has loved you. That's hard. That's hard to be a servant. That's hard to take off your robe to get down and wash smelly feet. It's hard to give your life as a ransom for other. It's hard to give your time and effort and money. See, again, it's easy to say I love. It's hard to put love into practice. 
But love is an action and it's a decision. And here's the reality. If the way that we love should show that the gospel is true. People should know that there is a difference by the way that we love one another is how we are being loved by Jesus. So Jesus comes in and he says, as I have loved you, now go love one another. Now, why does the Apostle Paul take this and he's exhorting them to love and then he turns and he applies it to work? It seems odd, doesn't it? It's not from this perspective because here's the reality. Our love for God is shown by how we work for others. Let's unpack this a little bit. He tells us that we aspire, we need to aspire to love in a very specific way. Now, again, they're looking to the return of Jesus. That's our whole point um, in First Thessalonians. Jesus is coming back. So then how should we live? So the people were anticipating the return of Jesus. They, he said he's coming back. They know he's coming back. So how do you now live your life? Well, what was happening was some people were starting to quit living. They stopped. Have you heard the statement, this person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? You heard that? That is true for some people. They are so heavenly minded, they're so other minded that if you were to ask them to do things here, I don't have time for that. That's not what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. He's saying it's just the opposite. He's saying God has given you work. God's given us work. Listen, this is even before the fall. Okay, I know the problems happen after the fall, but work is something that God has created that is good. And he gives it to us. And part of this is that there has to be the reality that we understand work matters to God. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Work is more than your occupation. If you equate work with your occupation, then you've minimalized work. It can be a part of your occupation because what we are told to do is that we are given dignity by our work, but then we're supposed to give all glory to God in our work. So work has meaning and a purpose. And again, the greater purpose is to go out and to make disciples of all nations. Now, you might be doing that in your occupation. It might be, how do you as a, um, as a lawyer, how do you as a teacher, how do you as a businessman, how do you as an engineer, how do you as a, uh, as a, um, someone who goes out and just works a, a nine to five, uh, minimum wage job? That's not what defines you. The work that we do is given to the glory of God because it's for His glory, for His purposes. That's why we should be, of all people, a joy to be around at work. Now, there might be some people in your work that are saying, Hey, stop, you're making me look bad. Everybody should say that in your place of business. You should give your best, not just because you're looking for um, stock returns. Not because you're just looking to move up the corporate ladder. You should be giving all your best to the glory of God. Because you work. We don't just worship an audience of one. We work for an audience of one. So whether it's at home, whether it's your homework, kids, youth, we all work. So do we do it just to simply get by? Do we gripe and complain why we do it or do we do it to God's glory? And again, easy words to say, it's hard to glorify God taking out trash, weeding the garden, washing cars, 
going to work at 4 o'clock in the morning, coming to work, home at 11 at night. But do we give all glory to God? And when we do, we can begin to see that the world begins to change. And he tells us very specific things. And I got this next uh, little quip here from one of the commentaries where it said we needed to be excited to be quiet. So there are people who go out and you know these kind of people that are anxious, they worry, they are overwhelmed by work, right? They complain incessantly. They're always complaining. They're always griping. They're always telling someone else. It's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else's job to do it kind of thing. They are, in essence, fanatics. They are people who are like the spotlight. They're the ones, you know, when we see on TV, when things go bad, they're the first ones there. And when the cameras leave, they leave. When we go to these sporting events, and and this is, I think it's funny, but, you know, where the Orlando, um, what's the soccer team? What? Yeah, Orlando City. So they have a day where they're going to go clean up uh, Paramore neighborhood. How many of the soccer players did you see on TV? These guys who are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. Well, when the camera's there, they'll pick up a a few pieces of paper, right? The cameras go, their uh, agents come in, they're gone. Now the person that's getting paid $8 an hour, he's out there all day. That's how the world works. And God says, hey, it's got to be something. There's an art to being quiet. There's an art to understand that God has put you in a place and you do it for his honor. So go and be excited to be quiet as you work. Don't bring the spotlight to yourself. The second thing he says, he says, look to yourself. Quit being so, um, sorry, um, those, write it down quickly, quickly. All right. He says, the next thing, he says, stop looking at yourself. Stop being so nosy about everybody else. Why does, why does the news work? Because people want to know about everybody. Hey, what's going on? Why does an accident, if you're caught behind it, take you 12 hours to get through? Because everybody's got to stop and look. And aren't you, when you're back there, the ones griping and complaining, can't stand them. Take it so long until you get up there and you're just like, what happened? We're nosy. What does the scripture tell us in regards to reflecting the glory of God? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we need to take a look at ourselves, and then the second, the last thing he tells them to do is quit being lazy. These are people who believe that manual labor was beneath them. So they said, hey, it's okay for other people to do it, but that's not what I'm called to do. And God says, quit being lazy, work, Listen, he says, work with your own hands. You work with your own hands. This is what it says in Psalm 90. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So we should be glorifying and honoring God with the way that we work. And when that happens, listen, people see that love. People see it. So what happens is is Paul says, hey, the way that you have loved other people, the way that you have worked around them has won the respect of outsiders. 
What do people say about you? Because listen, the reality is people are watching. They're watching what you say. They're watching what you do. There's, and especially if you're known as a Christian. They're definitely seeing if your walk matches up to the talk. Because it's easy for them to come back and go, look, well, there's no difference between them and me. They're just hypocrites about it. See, he says, we know that we should be, of all people, know that we're being watched. And so we walk in a way that's pleasing to God. But we also walk in the world so that people might know. Because what happens is it's an adorning of the gospel. It makes the gospel real. It makes it invisible. Remember the the, um, statement from St. Francis of Assisi? Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Now, again, I'm not sure I agree with that statement because you have to preach the gospel. But his understanding is there saying we should live lives in such a way that when people come around us, they know that there is something different. And they should ask, why? Why do you? Why are you an engineer the way that you're an engineer? Why do you take care? Why do you care about this work? Why are you not cheating like everybody else around you? Why, why are you running your business the way you are? Because I love God. Because he first loved me. And so as that becomes out there, then what happens is he says, then we don't become a burden. We don't become a burden to anyone else. It, it, it's, it tells us very clearly, we're to give in the Holy Spirit to those that we are never dependent on anyone. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't some times where you ask for help. But listen, what he's saying is that we aren't a burden because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And listen, I understand that church is a refuge to the world. I have a number of you who come in and go, man, I need this. Because I'm out in the world all the rest of the week and I'm beat up and I'm bombarded and they're, they're telling me I have to, to, to compromise who I am to get ahead. I have to make um, extra hours. I have to do all these kind of things. I have to come and define this place of rest. And God understands it. So that's why he calls us together to encourage one another, to build each other up, to love with brotherly love. Again, the last thing I want you to do is to be sitting here and kind of, we got to go to Northside today. Check the box. Got to do it. God tells me. This should be a place. Listen, even if the world is out there spitting on us, throwing, hurling insults at us, we should desire to get in this room and hug on people and to listen to them and tell them and, and to encourage them, to build them up. Oh, this is a place. Oh, this is where we find rest and hope and mercy and grace and love. This is the place. That's what we're called to do. Because why? Because then it becomes what? The launching pad. The launching pad to go back into the world. Because of the love of Christ here, we go out into a world that is dying around us to see what it means to love the way that Christ loves, to see what it means to work unto the glory of God and not man, to see what it means to be changed by the gospel. Because to know Christ is a radical change from the world. That's what he told us, right? That's the theme of the mission trip. These men have come here and have turned the world upside down. May that be said of us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father.
You have called us. You have given your life as a ransom for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he became that payment for us, but then he gives to us his perfection. But more than that, he gives to us his love. A love that this world doesn't grasp or understand. A love that goes beyond a love of servitude and a love of sacrifice. So, Father, encourage us, especially as we come to your table and we see the gospel in a visual way, that you died on our behalf, that you spilt your blood to satisfy the wrath of God, but then you give to us your perfection so that we might be called the sons and daughters. And, Father, we look forward to that day where there's no more curses enacted to our work, where every project goes smoothly, no more weeding, no more pain, no more suffering, and we get to be in the presence of our Savior and Lord forevermore. Lord, continue to give us rest and hope. Then, Lord, send us out to do the work in our occupations, but, Lord, the greater work of making disciples of all nations that they might bow the knee and call you Lord as we do today. For this we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen.